morning, Heartland, all of you in the building, watching out in the cafe, watching online, listening online. So glad that you're here. So glad you're joining us uh, this weekend before Easter. Uh, we're going to talk about some fun stuff. This is our uh, kind of final week of the Jesus John New, even though, it, you know, our Easter services, we're going to continue. Uh, hopefully you've been reading along in the Gospel of John with us um, over the last couple of weeks. And uh, to begin today, I want to talk about something uh, that the internet made famous, and I realize the internet uh, is just a place for d- terrible things. It's just a, it can be a place of just a a cesspool of human opinion with no accountability, uh, which is a real dangerous. I avoid Reddit like I avoid gluten. It's just it's a it's a scary place to go sometimes. But the internet has spawned some good things. Uh, one of which I want to talk about uh, this morning, which is uh, something that is is usually referred to as expectation versus reality. I don't know if you're familiar with this. If you're not, there's some very funny pictures uh, and memes and images out there of people comparing like what they expected to happen or to be and then the reality, which is usually way less and really funny. So if you, know, if you ever tried to bake a cake based on an image and it just looked like terrifying, you know, it's like SpongeBob's eyes melting, that kind of thing. So it's like the expectation was it's going to look like this TV show did it. And then your reality is really scary. So in case you're unfamiliar, I brought some pictures to share with you uh, of expectation versus reality. This is a real common one, fast food. Yeah, so the, the expectation is, is six pounds of just barbecue slathered uh, Wagyu beef. And, and they, you know, there's not that. They just microwave some spam and put it in between the burger there. Yeah. Um, this one I resonate with every single year, snowmen. Right? You ever go build a snowman with your kid? And he's like, why is it possessed? And I'm like, there's mud, dude. I don't know why the pictures always show it perfectly clean. Uh, what's, what's the next one? Yeah, this one, uh, vacation. If you ever go on vacation, uh, right? The, the, the advertisements, the images, it's like Disney's empty except for you. And then you go and you're like, I've touched 93 people and I'm not even in the park yet. Um, this one made me laugh so hard, this pizza one. <laughs> That's so great. <laughs> I just, <laughs> it's not really a perfect expectation versus reality. That's just a lazy employee who was like, where's the plastic window? That's where I'll put the pepperoni. Gosh, that made me laugh so hard. Uh, those of you with children, this is what you thought sleep with children would be like, but that's the reality, 100%. Same with pets, right? You think you're just going to spoon your like, gorgeous soft pet, and then they're just curled up in your face, and yeah, it's just terrible. A uh, couple more. Here's a universal one we can all get behind. I don't know who works at uh, Lay's or Nabisco or whatever. We've got to have a talk, all right? Just make the bag smaller. That's fine. I just want to know what I'm expecting instead of like, Koof! I found one. I got a chip. There was a chip in the bottom. And then this is the last one. I don't know if this is men and women, but for men, this is 100%, uh, 100% true. <laughs> Isn't that right? The thing with guys, I don't know if this is all men. This is me. I just, I don't, I feel rude saying something. I don't know why. This is, I just, I, it looks terrible, but I'm in the mirror like, nice. I love it. That's just nailed it. Thank you. We could take the bowl off now. And that was really good. Yeah. Well, hopefully you've been reading, as I said, through the Gospel of John. Uh, each week we've been uh, reading every single day, Monday through Friday, one of the chapters of John. 
uh, leading up to Easter. Um, and we've been talking about something from one of those uh, uh, chapters on that next weekend. So this weekend, we're going to be discussing something from John 11 through 15. And let me tell you, it was not an easy decision what to pick. If you've been reading along with us, you know that in this section of Scripture, there are a lot of accounts, a lot of uh, uh, stories that we could have, have talked about, not only for this morning, but for like a whole entire teaching series. So in this section of John, we read about uh, Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead. That's, that's a good one. Uh, the religious leaders planning to have Jesus arrested and killed. Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem. Jesus washing the disciples' feet. The Last Supper. Jesus predicting his death, predicting Judas' betrayal, predicting Peter's denial, and so many more. It was really, really hard to make a decision on what we were going to talk about today. But in the interest of getting you all home before Easter, we're just going to pick one. We just we got to get out of here in about a half hour. So we're just going to pick one. Uh, and today I'm going to talk about what happens in John 12, verses 12 through 19 which is Jesus' entry into Jerusalem. As you know, today is Palm Sunday. It is named after this account when Jesus entered Jerusalem. We're going to read the account in a minute, but there's three things we need to know uh, before we dig into it. The first one is that uh, this was the beginning of the Jewish Passover celebration. This was a, a, uh, a significant moment of celebration that the Jewish people had celebrated for thousands of years to remember when God freed them from slavery in Egypt. This meant that at this point in, in the celebration, as many Jews as were able-bodied and could afford it would travel from wherever they lived in Israel to Jerusalem to celebrate Passover, meaning the population of Jerusalem uh, increased by 10. So it's, uh, uh, normally about 20,000 people would live in Jerusalem every single day. But during the week of Passover, there were as many as 200,000 people packed into the city of Jerusalem, meaning a lot of people were there when Jesus made his entry. A lot of people saw him come in. Speaking of which, the second thing we have to know, which we'll read about in this account, is that Jesus' reputation preceded him. People heard the stories about this rabbi from Galilee, this rabbi from Nazareth, who the power of God was so clearly with that he was casting out demons simply by speaking, that he was feeding thousands of people with only a few items of food. He had just, like recently, right before this, raised Lazarus from the dead. This story spread quickly. And so as Jesus entered, people were well aware of the power that this man had. And the third thing to know is that all of the Jews believed he was their promised Messiah. Throughout the Hebrew Scriptures, for thousands and thousands of years, sometimes directly, sometimes through prophets, God was speaking about the one who was coming who would free and redeem and rescue God's people. All the J Jewish people knew this, and while there were others who would claim to be the Messiah before Jesus, because of the power that Jesus demonstrated, the three-year ministry that he had, where again, the, the stories and accounts of what he had done and the power that was with this, the way he taught differently and the healings and raising from the dead, all of this made these people think, this is the guy. Like, this is the one. Finally, after all of this time, we've been waiting, we've been reading these prophecies, there's been rumors, and finally, we believe this is the promised Messiah, which is why there was such a response when he entered Jerusalem. Okay, so let's jump in. John 12, starting in verse 12, uh, says this. Uh, the next day, the news that Jesus was on the way to Jerusalem swept through the city. A, a large crowd of Passover visitors took palm branches, and went down the road to meet him. They shouted, praise God. Blessings on the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Hail to the king of Israel. 
Jesus found a young donkey and rode on it, fulfilling the prophecy that said, don't be afraid, people of Jerusalem. Look, your king is coming riding on a donkey's colt. His disciples didn't understand it at the time that this was a fulfillment of prophecy, but after Jesus entered into his glory, they remembered what had happened and realized that these things had been written about him. Many in the crowd had seen Jesus call Lazarus from the tomb, raising him from the dead, and they were telling others about it. That was the reason so many went out to meet him, because they had heard about this miraculous sign. Then the Pharisees said to each other, there's nothing we can do. Look, everyone has gone after him. There's a lot wrapped up in this. We see the Pharisees were like plotting stuff. We see the disciples like didn't quite get it, but later they understood it. Jesus fulfilling a prophecy. And you might have heard of this account, even if you're like not a church person, even if those are, I would say, maybe never been to church, have probably heard of this account or at least known about it because of today being called Palm Sunday, named after this day and named after the fact that a lot of the Jewish people went and got palm branches to uh, wave and lay down in front of Jesus as he entered Jerusalem. Now, when you picture this account, uh, at least for me, I picture something like this. I don't know if you're familiar with this kind of imagery. This is sort of what I picture, um, you know, Swedish Jesus uh, with the red beard and I don't know why there's like uh, like weird half-naked cherub kids. Run. I don't know what that, I don't think that's not in the text. Jake was like, why are there special moments kids in the picture? I was like, I don't know. I don't know why they're in there. But this is kind of what I picture. This is what you picture walking in. But beneath the palm branches and the donkey and the weird cherub kids, um, there was something much deeper going on during his entry. It wasn't simply this like really nice moment that everybody had there was something really significant going on, something in the way that they were worshiping Jesus. But it wasn't something that the Jewish people and Jesus had in common that was happening deeper. It was actually something that separated them, something that Jesus could see, and it broke his heart, as we'll read about, something between expectation and reality. One of the most confusing aspects of this account, and if you've read through the Gospels, you might have thought this at one point or another, is that within a few days after this event, all of these same people would be chanting passionately for Jesus's execution. Like this moment, you know, palm branches, praising him as king, laying down their coats for him to pass on by, as we read about in a different account. But within a few days, they would all be chanting in unison, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. Why? What happened between this moment and his execution that changed all of their minds? It's not like Jesus did anything different. In fact, he did the exact things he had done for the previous three years and why people knew who he was. He taught and he healed and he cast out demons and he dignified those whose society had marginalized. It's not like he spent his time doing something that would you know, switch people's minds drastically. He didn't like you know, kill anybody. He didn't like steal from anybody. He didn't openly declare that he didn't think U2 was that great, which you know, that causes a big riot a lot of places. If you don't like U2, people don't understand. He didn't do any of that. So why in the world did it switch from praising, shouting praise, uh, greeting him with joy to shouting for his crucifixion? Well, it wasn't something Jesus did. It was the fact that there was a gap between expectation and reality. As Jesus entered Jerusalem on Palm Sunday, there was an incredible gap between why the Jewish people were worshiping him and the actual reason 
that he came. Between what they expected him to do and the reality of why he came. See, the expectation of the Jewish people was that the Messiah that God had been promising for years and years and years and years was going to come free them as a nation. Much like God had done throughout the First Testament, he had led his people in military success over nations that had maybe occupied their promised land before they got there, nations who tried to invade them in their promised land, nations who had conquered them and taken them away. God had shown up and conquered these nations and given them, you know, national political freedom. And so at this moment in history, as the Israelites were conquered and ruled by Rome, granted they were given freedom to worship Jehovah and all this kind of thing, but they were still, you know, taxed by Rome. They were still oppressed by Rome. They were still mistreated by Rome. And so the expectation was this Messiah was going to come save them from Rome. And as Jesus' reputation grew, it contained clear evidence of God's power. And so again, many of the people, in fact, you could argue most of the people, if not all of them there worshiping Jesus, were thinking, here he is. This is the guy. Finally. We're sick of this oppression by Rome. We want to be our own nation. We want to own our own land. And finally, we have seen the power of God in this guy. And here he comes And Man, I cannot wait to see what he's going to do to Caesar and to Herod. And so I'm going to worship this guy as our king because he's clearly got the power to do exactly what we've been waiting for him to do. This expectation is seen in a couple ways in this account of Palm Sunday. The first one is that palm branches, you might have thought, you're like, why are they waving plants at Jesus? They had a, they had a significant symbolism. Um, they were a symbol of Jewish nationalism. They represented Jewish freedom and independence as a nation. And so as the crowd waved these branches, they were declaring and praising Jesus as a national political savior. Be like waving an American flag, very simple. Like, you, you know, you are here for us. You are here to free us and give us freedom, and so we praise you and we worship you. The second thing evidenced is even the way that they praised Jesus. The NLT translation, which we just read, says that they praised him by saying, praise God. Some of your translations, you might have heard, uh, it's actually the word Hosanna. You've heard this word before. It's a very famous word. And yes, praise is associated with this word, but the most literal direct translation of the word Hosanna is save now. Again, it was definitely praise, but it was also more of a plea, a prayer, a demand. The word Hosanna, from the root words for now, beseech, I pray, and the root word for save, deliver, help, avenge, defend, rescue, and victory. So, while their praise was genuine, I mean, there's there's nothing false about this, and it was directed to the right person, the reason they were praising Jesus was for an expectation that they had that he would come overthrow Rome and give Israel their land back. But as we know, this is not why Jesus came. Jesus did not come to be a war hero. He did not come to be a political dominator. He did not come to overthrow Rome and give Israel their national freedom. He came for a much bigger, a much better reason. Jesus demonstrates why he came through his triumphal entry. Instead of Jesus entering Jerusalem 
as a conquering king. This was a familiar practice during this time where a king after a, a, a military victory would enter into the city with his armies and with the slaves that they had captured and the treasure that they had gained with his horses and armies and celebration and people would praise their king saying, here is our conquering king. King David did this back in the First Testament as well. So this was a common practice, but Jesus flips this entire thing upside down as is pretty common in God's kingdom. Instead of armies, Jesus entered with his 12 disciples. Instead of war horses, he entered riding a colt. Instead of displaying his power, he displayed humility. Instead of coming in as a conqueror, he modeled peace. But the crowds were praising Jesus for the kind of Messiah they expected him to. To be. Now, I'm not saying every person had it wrong. I'm not saying, you know, this was the exact reason every person was doing it. They totally missed the boat. In fact, there is evidence in Scripture, um, people specifically listed, Simeon and Anna in particular, as well as others, who got it, who understood, who God had told, you know, the real purpose and the heart behind why Jesus came. That was diff- different from their expectations. But it is clear the majority of this crowd was worshiping Jesus' entrance into Jerusalem based on an incorrect perception of what kind of saving he was going to do because of what they expected. They had an expectation of a promised Messiah being a military king who would demonstrate God's power over Rome, freeing them from oppression, but the reality of his Messiahship had a far greater significance. He was to be the Messiah for all mankind, freeing them from the eternal consequences of our sin. Both were good, but one was way better. And this speaks to the exact nature of expectation versus reality when it comes to God. When it comes to expectation versus reality, as we just saw in these pictures, typically in our world, our reality is a lot worse than our expectation. Yes? When we try to do something that we, we think it's going to be this, and it ends up being this. We think it's going to be this, and it ends up being this. It's, I mean, it's funny. Sometimes it's more significant. Uh, I remember I've told this story before, but uh, when I bought my first house, I was really excited to grow a garden because uh, I wanted to make my own salsa. I was going to open a shop. And, no, not really. I just wanted to make my own salsa. And so I started a, 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 a you know, garden for like salsa ingredients. And my expectation was like, man, I'm going to just be hiring like neighborhood kids coming in to like harvest and stuff. We're just going to be like making salsa in the kitchen, like dishing out jars. It's going to be amazing. And after like two months, there was a little green pepper right there. <laughs> That's all I had. Then I had to wait, like water, and then by the end of the summer, finally, it had all, you know, bloomed, and so I made salt, and it was just a little tiny thing of salsa, and it was good, but I was like, I'm just going to go spend $2.99 at the store and just buy salt. This was not worth it. You know, my expectation was here, and the reality was here. Sometimes it's more significant than that. Um, you know, when I, when I talk to folks who are about to get married, uh, it's so amazing to have, like, incredible conversations and talk about their relationship and upcoming marriage, but one of the things I always say to them because this happened to Lindsay and I, my wife and I, is uh, premarital stuff was really helpful because we could talk about all the things we knew we expected. But there were a lot of things that once we got married, we didn't realize we had expectations for. And so our first year of marriage was rough. And we're like, what what the heck happened? We had all this counseling. We met with couples. We were like super like prep. We were like super couple. We were ready to go in the marriage. But we didn't realize there were a lot of things we expected in marriage that we didn't even know we knew about. We didn't know what we didn't know. And so our first year of marriage, we're like, isn't this supposed to be like the honeymoon phase or whatever? Like, this is rough. And so we had to get through some stuff. Be like, oh, yeah, I expected this. And we need to communicate about this. We need to talk about this. And this happens across the board. But in God's kingdom, 
God's reality is always better than our expectations. Always. God's reality is always better than our expectations. And we see this modeled throughout Scripture again and again and again and again. Abraham, who is the father of God's people, expected to live a life as a good man and a husband without children because his wife was barren. But God's reality was to seek out Abraham, speak to him, bless him, and promise him that he would become the father of a great nation, God's chosen people, through which would come the Savior of the world. Joseph, in the First Testament, expected to live a life as the youngest brother, yet his father's favorite, going to be a good life, going to become a good shepherd. And yet God's reality took him through slavery and prison to become the second most powerful man in the most powerful ancient uh, like uh, uh, nation at that time, not only saving his family from famine, but God's entire nation. After her husband died, Ruth expected to live a life as a widow with her former mother-in-law, but God's reality was to give her a husband, to give her children, and include her in the family line of the promised Messiah of Jesus himself. Paul expected to live a life hunting and capturing followers of Jesus to eradicate this movement that he, he viewed as an enemy to his own personal faith. But God's reality was to encounter Paul, to make him the most influential follower of Jesus during the early church, and also write the majority of what would become our New Testament. There are a number of times where people come to Jesus during his ministry and they have an expectation maybe of something like physical healing, which in and of itself is amazing. That's a high expectation. But Jesus' reality was not only to give them healing, but also to forgive their sins. And the Jewish people expected a Messiah to come free them from Rome. But God's reality was that the Messiah would save every single human that has, does, or will exist from death, darkness, sin, from separation from the God of life, light, and eternity. God's reality is always better than our expectations. And don't you love it when something surpasses your expectations? Man, it blows our mind. You get to the, you know, you get to the line at, at Six Flags and it's way shorter than you thought. We're like, we only have to wait an hour instead of seven for Batman. This is great. Food at a restaurant, you know, you're like, I did not expect it to be this good. When something is on sale that you need, isn't that great? Or at the register, that's the best one, man. When you go up at the register and like, oh, this is 50% off. What? Hobby Lobby. Just pick some at Hobby Lobby. It's probably 50% off. It's, I don't know. They just take signs and like gun them into the store. They're like, that's half off now. You're like, why are you pricing it so high in the first place? You know when the bears win? It's like expectation. That never happens, actually. So I've, I've never experienced that. I've heard, I've heard it's a thing, but yeah, we'll see you. You know, one of the greatest sources of pain and frustration and discontentment with really anyone, but I would say especially those of, those of us, those of you who would say you're a follower of Jesus, is when we have an expectation of God that he does not fulfill. And when that happens, it is incredibly easy to interpret it that God isn't real, that God isn't good, that God isn't present, that God doesn't care, that God isn't loving, that God is lazy. When we have an expectation of something and God doesn't do it, our initial reaction is like, Lord, what, who are you? But we know from the truth and promises of his word that couldn't be further from the truth. And yet we so focus so much on our own expectation, we might actually miss what God is actually doing. When we stay stuck on our expectation, we just might miss God's reality. Listen to these two passages from, from God's Word. I want to 
point out something in both of them. Psalm, Psalm 37, 4 uh, says, Take delight in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. Romans 8, 28. And we know that, the God, that God causes everything to work together for the good of those who love God and are called according to his purpose for them. Now, uh, these two passages, you might have heard them before. We really like the first part of those passages. In fact, that's oftentimes what we walk away with. We're like, oh my gosh, I just pray God will give me what I want. <laughs> just give me the desires of my heart. Hey, God's going to take anything I do, anything that happens to me, and make it work together for my good. This is great. What an awesome way to live life. Now, granted, there are elements of that that are extremely true. God is a God who wants to bless and give, who wants us to live the absolute best life possible. But there's more to both of these passages. Psalm 37 says, when we take delight in the Lord. Romans 8 it says, God causes all things to work together for those who are called according to whose purpose? His purpose. Because here's the deal. When we start taking delight in the Lord, when we start seeking to under, understand and be a part of God's purpose, what happens is suddenly our expectations start to shift closer towards God's reality. The more time that we spend praying and seeking and listening and being with God, taking delight in him, the more suddenly our heart's desires are going to become a lot closer to his desires. Suddenly our expectations of God are going to shift a lot closer to the reality of what God is doing. And when our expectations line up with God's reality, boom, that is when God's power shows up. That is when God's presence shows up. That is where there is peace and joy and hope and purpose and love. That's where miracles happen. When our expectations line up, with God's reality. But if we stay stuck, focused on our expectations, we just very well might miss God's reality. Now, there might be times where we might be tempted to think, you know, sometimes subconsciously, sometimes out loud, that, hey, God, what I want you to do is actually better than whatever you're doing. That's so easy to think. Like, how, you know, like, this is what I want. This is what I'm praying for, Lord. This is clearly best. I don't know what's going on over here, Lord. I don't know what you're doing. But if you could just get on board with my plan, we would really be nailing it because this is for sure the best thing to happen. This is, you know, what I want to happen is absolutely the best way. But the truth is, there's a God, and it's not me. And maybe the God of the universe knows a little bit more than me. And more than that, God's word promises that God's desire for us is for our good. In Isaiah 55, it says God's ways are higher than ours. God's thoughts are higher than ours. And then it says, duh. It doesn't say duh, but I would put that in there. <laughs> Jeremiah 29, 11 says God has a plan and a purpose for us. John 10, 10 says Jesus came to give us the abundant life. Not the boring one, not the obligatory one, not the God's mad at us all the time one. The abundant life. These are the promises of God. And isn't it possible that God's reality is going to be better than our expectations even when it doesn't make sense? Even when we can't see it? Even when it seems opposite? This was the very reason that the Jewish people got so angry at Jesus. They praised him one day, and a few days later, not only did he not like fulfill their expectation of him as a Messiah, but they were now witnessing him being captured, beaten, and about to be executed by the very nation they expected him to come and overthrow. 
Now you take their expectation that this dude's going to come and God's power is going to show up, maybe like it did in Israel, and all these plagues are going to befall the Roman people. They're like, this is it. This is our Savior. You guys wait for the show. God's going to show up. It's going to be amazing. Now they're standing in the temple courts looking at what they, who they thought was going to be their freer, their redeemer, their rescuer, their Messiah, bloodied, tied up, and beaten by the very nation they expected him to overthrow. How frustrating, how upsetting, how deeply angering that must have been. And it's no wonder the, the flip switched real quick and they started shouting, crucify him. He is not who we thought he was. But again, God's reality, so much better than our expectations. Aren't you glad that what the Jewish people expected of Jesus was not the reason he came? Aren't you glad that God's reality was so much bigger? It's the reason we're in this room. It's the reason we're watching and listening right now. And how many times in your life, I bet if you stopped and think, how many times in your life, if you were to think back and think, gosh, I'm so glad God didn't give me what I wanted. <laughs> I'm so glad God didn't follow through on what I expected of him because in the end, man, his, his way was so much better. And the truth is that when we miss the gift that God has for us, when we miss God's reality, um, God doesn't get angry, God doesn't get bitter, God doesn't shove us away. Uh, it breaks his heart. It hurts the heart of God when he offers us this gift of life and purpose and hope and peace and joy and you know, living in his kingdom and his reality. And when we miss it, when we reject it, that's what breaks his heart. We're not really told what Jesus is thinking or feeling uh, during his entry into Jerusalem. However, in the uh, Gospel of Luke, we're told what happened immediately after what Jesus felt in Luke 19, verse 41, right after the, the entry into Jerusalem. It says, as he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it and said, if, you even, if even you had only known on this day what would bring you peace, which was not overthrowing Rome, which was not national political freedom, but now it is hidden from your eyes. The days will come when your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side. They will dash you to the ground, you and the children within your walls. They will not leave one stone on another because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. The word for wept in the Greek uh, is actually the word for wail. That Jesus had this entry where people praising and worshiping him and yet his heart was breaking because they didn't see it. They saw, they saw what they expected, which was this, and he came, came to bring this. In fact, this is in John's Gospel, uh, we read uh, that Jesus cried moments before he entered Jerusalem. It's like one of the most famous passages in Scripture because it's only two words. It's a weird reason to be famous, but it is. But in, in John, after, uh, like, it says Jesus wept. And this was the account when he raised right before he raised Lazarus from the dead. Now, there's different ways to interpret it. Obviously, I, I've been wrong once or twice back in the early 90s, but um, I could be wrong about this. The way I interpret that passage, if you read it through, I don't think Jesus was crying because he was sad about the death of Lazarus. In fact, if you read the account, from the very beginning, it seemed like Jesus was really excited to raise him from the dead. He was pumped about God's power showing up in this way. And it says in the text, when he looked around and saw all the people wailing and mourning, and he even came and he was like, I came to bring life. I came to bring it and they're like yeah okay sure lord whatever and then it says he wept because he was offering life and they missed it they didn't see it their vision was too their expectation was too small for the reality of what god was going to do Can you imagine 
if you, you know, I've been dating somebody for years and years and years, falling over, head over heels in love, ready to spend the rest of your life with this person. You spend all your life savings on a diamond ring. You kneel down, you open up the box, you propose in marriage, and they say, no, I'm good. What? You, why? But I, but I've like pursued you and dated you. I love you so much. I spent all the money on this ring. This is to symbolize my love for you. Like, no, I just let's just be friends. It'd be cool. I just I'd prefer to hang out as, as friends. It'd be heartbreaking. Heartbreaking. Devastating. And this is what Jesus sees. He says, "Look at the look at what I came to give you. I'm just I'm not just going to take out the nation of Rome. That's temporary. That's a quick fix." I can't just, I'm not just going to save you from this. I'm going to save your soul for all eternity. That now the God that is separate from you because of your sin will no longer be so. So the question I ask this morning that I want you to consider, is there something that you are praising God for what you expect of him instead of just praising him? Is there something where you are actually worshiping your expectation instead of worshiping your heavenly Father? I experienced this a uh, number of weeks ago when we had a, a worship night in this room, uh, really clearly. I, um, for those of you that don't know some of my story, I'll just, uh, just real briefly go over it. But uh, in 2019, my daughter, who was seven at the time, uh, suffered a traumatic brain injury. Uh, she fell off a golf cart going like two miles an hour. It's really, really fluky. But, uh, you know, life has obviously never been the same. She should have died like three times and didn't. She's just a miraculous child. But our lives have been very, very, you know, significantly changed in, in caring for her. She's nonverbal. She's 100% dependent. And, uh, I mean, there's a lot there. I could tell you stories of really deep heartbreak and then God showing up in unbelievable ways. Uh, but I will say, like, early on in, in our hospital stay, uh, which was a long one, both my wife and I and friends and, and, and family just like really clearly felt to pray for healing. Um, I, you know, I know there's different beliefs on that. That's cool. We just like so clearly felt like the Lord was going to heal her, like 100% full, restored, display his power, uh, all, all this kind of thing. And, uh, you know, that was, that was uh, August 2019. And I have not stopped praying for that. We have not stopped praying for that. Um, but as you can imagine, it's really easy for my own expectations to be inserted in, into that prayer. It's really easy to look at my baby girl and like have my own desires and my own expectations of what I would like to happen, what I, even what I expect to happen like based on scripture, based on past experience. Like it's very easy for my own expectations to get wrapped up in that. Now I, you know, God has taught me so much about what, like what faith looks like and, you know, faith is hoping for what we can't see and, and all this kind of thing and, and different parables that Jesus told that, that I live by. Um, so, you know, we, I'm walking this journey of like what's the tension between uh, embracing reality and my daughter and also praying for the power of God to show. It's just a weird, it's a goofy tension. But uh, we had a worship night on a, on a Thursday night here uh, a number of weeks ago, and I was sitting right back there in that corner with uh, my wife, Lindsay, and Ava came. She's a worshiper, and so she was in her wheelchair and just like loves worship music, and I'm holding her hand, and we're singing. And I remember, <clears throat> uh, it was a weird uh, thought I had, but it was because it was a worship night, I don't know why but I just felt like, oh, maybe my prayers will be better here. I was stupid. I, you know, it's like, we were in a worship night. These will really work, you know. So, so I remember I, it was this weird, it was like a pressure almost where I was like, okay, Lord, 
what do I, what should I pray? Like, what, what's the thing? You know, I pray healing, and I pray life over her, and we love her, and I love living life with her now, and, and she's just this little miracle. And, but I was like, all right, Lord, what do you, what do you want? What, what should I pray? What do you want me to pray right now? And I was just thinking really hard about what it should be. And I'll, I just really clearly, the Spirit, it felt like he, like, walked behind me and just put his hand on my shoulder, and he goes, he goes, hey, you don't, you don't need to pray for anything. I got her. Just worship me. And, and it's funny how liberating that was to release my expectations. It was extremely freeing to release this pressure of like, what do I have to say and what do I have to do? And like, you know, when we have expectations, we kind of want to hold them to make sure that they come true, that they happen, and they happen in the exact way that we really would like them to happen. That's an exhausting place to be because sometimes you got to hold them really tight if they're not happening the way that you should think. And the Holy Spirit said, just, just hold them like this. And I was like, oh, nah. Oh, that's usually what I do. I leave it up to you. Nah, I, I got it. He's like, no, just, just, and th- I mean, honestly, this is the way that God, I think, teaches us to do a lot. Hold all our finances, hold our blessings, hold our relationships, hold our talents, our gifts, our expectations, our prayers. Just, he's like, just hold it here. And that was just, that was a significant moment where he said, just, just worship me. Again, very freeing, very liberating. So uh, I'm going to close here in a minute and pray, and I'd love to encourage um, any of you here, any of you watching uh, at home or listening, if this morning you've realized there's an expectation of God that has become more important than God, if you've realized that you are uh, seeking the expectation more than the one who will fulfill it, if you've realized you've idolized your expectation over God himself, uh, I'm going to have us close our eyes and I'd encourage you just to hold your hands out like this. Just as a physical, symbolic act to say, Lord, my prayers, my expectations, my desires, what I want you to do, I'm going to hold like this. And I got, and I'll, I mean to tell you, there's a tension there, okay? We're not just going to get it right and be like, great, I have no more expectations of God. It's not going to happen. It is going to be a lifelong journey of tension between, you know, Jesus teaching us to like pray passionately and pray persistently for what we want and what we desire and also holding it loosely for God. But going back to the scriptures we read, particularly the one in Psalms, when we delight ourselves in the Lord, and again, the more that we seek, the more that we pray, the more that we listen, the more that we just be, the more that we just worship, the closer the Spirit's going to draw our heart and our expectations to His, and that's when the power of God is going to show up. So if you close your eyes and if you feel like led to, hold your hands open like this. Heavenly Father, I pray in Jesus' name for burdens to be released right now. Lord, in this room, in the homes of all of us who are watching, in the cars as we're listening, Father, for burdens in Jesus' name to be lifted. Burdens of our own expectations, of our own desires that might have gotten in the way of actually seeing you and hearing you and seeking you. Lord, I pray that you would begin right now in this moment teaching us what it means to expect what you expect. Teaching us what it means to delight ourselves in you. Lord, that you would teach us how to align our hearts and desires and expectations with your reality. Jesus, as you taught us to pray, may your kingdom come that we don't, have to get, we don't have to escape or get anywhere to make this happen. Lord, you said pray God's kingdom come on earth 
as it is in the heavenly realms. Lord, that we would seek you, that we would worship you, that we would hear you, that we would pray to you, that we would know you far, far above our expectations. Because we know, even when it doesn't make sense, we know and we trust and believe that your reality is always going to be better. Even when it doesn't make sense, even when it seems counterintuitive, even when it's confusing, maybe for a short period, maybe for a lifetime, God, we believe, we trust, we put our faith in you that what you are doing is far greater than anything we could desire or expect. Lord, I thank you that you are a patient, loving God. And again, as we experience the freedom of releasing burdens this morning, I ask that we would experience your embrace, your patience, your love, as you teach us, as you walk with us in how to seek you and know you above our expectations. I pray this in your name. Amen.